0: We are in Habakkuk this morning, and I'd like you to turn there in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, when we come to this guy, um, I was thinking about conversations that we've been having in our home lately around the dinner table and other times. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the growing trend. It's not new, because it was way back when I was in high school, but the growing trend of um, Darwinism and, and rationalism and humanism prevalent in our culture, eradicating Christianity. Well, years and years ago, when I was exposed to Darwinism, there was still a, a modicum of faith in the country, and so it was, God did it by evolution. You know, Now it's, we don't need God at all, it was just evolution, it was just rationalism. And as we've been talking about that we've been talking about atheism and and the the prevalence that is building in our society in America in the United States against God. And I was reading an article in a recent Christianity Today by a fellow who said that Camus led him to Christ, which is a very bizarre statement, but he was an atheist. And it was some of the problems that Camus presented that ultimately caused him to reconsider the roots of his Christian life and his family and come back to faith. And as he was expressing the turnaround in his own life to return to faith, this is what he said about atheism, and and I think he's actually right. He said atheists are not so much denying the existence of God as they are saying that if there is a God, He isn't good. And they cannot accept the idea that there's a God controlling the universe when things are as bad as they appear to be. In other words, the atheist is not reacting as if God didn't exist, the the hypothesis is more, a good God would not let this world run the way it's running. The interesting thing about Habakkuk is, he deals with that question. And if you've ever given any thought at all to what the world is like, at one time or another, that question has come to you. If God is good, why does he put up, why does he allow, permit evil in the world? If God is good, why doesn't he stop the bad? Why doesn't he deal with it? Habakkuk, as far as we know, we know almost nothing about him. He does not seem to be like one of the typical prophets. In fact... Many writers about this book, and as I've considered him, and you think about this guy, he is a very contemplative, thoughtful person. Some have suggested he was a Levite because of some of his uh, way he uses uh, the other scriptures or whatever, but whether or not that's true, I don't know. What I do know is he was a man who was looking at the problems of his society, He was looking at the current events surrounding him. He was thinking about the upswing of evil within his own country and the saber-rattling of the nations around him. And he began to ask the question, God, where are you in the midst of this? I don't understand why you're not doing something. But Habakkuk is honest enough to ask the question. Sometimes I think we have these kinds of thoughts and we don't know where to go with them. And we feel like uh, it would be perhaps inappropriate to go to God and say, Why are you doing what you're doing? But Habakkuk had enough faith in God to go with his questions And to hope for an answer. And as we open the book and begin to dig into it, that's what we see exactly that he was doing. He lived in a time when Josiah, who had been the last good king of Judah, the southern kingdom, had probably died. And the last revival and spiritual awakening that occurred under Josiah's rule was in the the past. And so what was happening was evil was coming back to the foreground in in Judah. So within his own nation, he looks around and he says, Everywhere I turn, wicked, evil behavior seems to be prevalent. It's growing. We We have problems. And then he lived at a time when the Assyrian Empire was kind of uh, disintegrating. We looked at that last week. It wouldn't be very much longer before Nineveh was ultimately overrun. The Chaldeans were on the rise, who were a part of the Babylonian empire that eventually became the dominant empire of the day and would be the ones that overran Judah. And he looked around and he saw that, that the nations around him were teetering. Assyria was falling. Egypt was, was failing. And the Babylonians and the Chaldeans were coming to to power and they were virtually as wicked as the Assyrians were. And so Habakkuk is in the midst of all this saying, What's going on? And and as he opens his book, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, chapter 1, verse 1, look at verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you, violence, and you do not save. Now, those are strong words to open up in a conversation with God. Lord, I've been praying for the problems around me, and you're not listening. I see no answers. I see no help. I don't see any deliverance. And secondly... When I see the violence and the crime that's going on around me and I ask you to do something about that, you're not, you're not saving anybody. You're not intervening. What's going on? Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Sounds like he's been reading the Chicago Tribune or something, doesn't it? You know? I mean, he's describing life as we know it. He's talking about, everywhere I turn, I see wickedness. I see violence. I see strife. People ignore the law. There's a callousness about the culture. As I mentioned, we were at dinner with friends last night, and he was talking about how he's uh, having to, uh, to drive to um, one of the southwest suburbs every day for his job right now. And I said, D- do you sense a rise in um, irrational behavior on the roads and people just doing crazy things, a lack of patience, he says yeah, it, says, it seems it's getting worse all the time. He said, people just they, they want what they want, whether they're in traffic or anywhere else and and it's just kind of crazy and you see the laws ignored and, and even at much larger levels than the traffic flow. And justice is never upheld. Why? Because when you go to court. The powers and authorities are in the pockets of the wealthy, and they, they're they taking bribes, or they're working for some unseen agenda, and justice is not meted out. You know, every once in a while I know somebody that has got to go through the courts to deal with one issue or another, and... Sometimes you hear the judgment, you know, and you just kind of think, man, what are they smoking down there? What, what could they possibly be thinking that they would come out like that? I, I hear divorce cases that go to court and come back with judgments that are just astounding. And you wonder, what is going on? And that's exactly where Habakkuk was. He says, I look around and all I see is, is lawlessness and the wicked are prospering and the courts are in their pocket and the whole thing is disintegrating. And I'm asking you, God, why don't you do something about it? I've been praying and I'm not getting any answers. Now Habakkuk has a right spirit, we'll see that in a little bit, but he has an honest question. He does not understand, if there is a God on the throne of the heavens, why the wicked seem to be getting away with murder on the earth. And he asks that question. Now, the interesting thing about the answer he gets is, he likes it even less the original problem. Because when God begins to answer him in verse 5, here's what he says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. In other words, he said, if you weren't asking me, and I weren't giving you the answers, you would never believe what I'm about to say. Because here's what's going to happen. I am raising up the Chaldeans. The fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places that aren't theirs. They're dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. In other words, they're their own God. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. That's pretty picturesque, isn't it? The horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour all of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and throw up rubble to capture it. You get the image of what they're doing there? You remember we talked about Nineveh being a walled city? And you come upon a fortress. It doesn't have to be ten stories tall. But, but say it's got a 20-foot wall around it. Well, if you got thousands in your army, everybody gets a rock, and they start throwing them against the wall till they've got a ramp. And then they just run over the wall and capture the city. And it says they don't even slow down. He says they they, they sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Now, here's what Habakkuk is hearing. God says, I'm not ignoring the sin of Judah. I'm not ignoring the crime that's in the streets. I'm not ignoring the corruption that's in the courthouse. I'm about to send the Chaldeans in to to deal with everybody. I'm going to bring judgment. It's coming by the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute. We're bad, but they're worse. How can you use a less godly group to punish us? That doesn't seem right. Listen to how he asked the question. And and notice his care here. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So, why do you look with favor on them? What are you thinking, God? They deal treacherously. Why are you silent when the wicked are swallowed up, when the wicked swallowed up those more righteous than they are? In other words, the Chaldeans are terrible. How, what do you mean you're going to use them to judge? They're an ungodly people. They're idolaters. They're, they're cruel. They're evil. What are you thinking? And he asks these questions. And in chapter 2, here's what he says. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Now, I want to point out Habakkuk's heart here. And I, and I, I, as I've read this man and studied this, I've really grown to love and respect him. Notice he finishes his statement by saying, I will see how I will reply when I am reproved. In other words, <laughs> I don't know what God's doing, but, but I know that I'm going to be wrong in my judgment. Do you see his heart? He's saying, God, I don't get it. I need some answers here. And I'm going to climb up in the watchtower on the wall, the ramparts, that's the the image. I'm going to climb up on top of the wall where the watchmen are, and I'm going to watch for your answer. I'm going to wait to hear from you. And I know that when I do... I'm probably going to be wrong. Do you see the faith in this man? Do you see his ultimate confidence that God has answers? Do you see his willingness to come to God with the hard questions and ask for answers? I want to encourage you this morning. It is all right to question God. with a right spirit or with a wrong spirit you know you're not going to you're not going to topple god off the throne with some question he can't handle the people that have a wrong spirit we're going to see that in just a moment they have another problem but if your heart is right You can go to God and ask Him the tough questions. And and, and I believe from Scripture that God will give you the answers. He will give you an understanding that will strengthen your faith. Do not be afraid to go to the God who loves you and say, I do not understand what you're doing. I don't get it. And furthermore, from my perspective, it doesn't seem right, but you're God, and I'd really like to hear your answer. That's where Habakkuk is, and he's waiting for an answer. You know, some people toss up a prayer, and then they don't bother to wait around. Now, I don't mean you have to sit there with your eyes closed, your hands folded for days on end, you know, but there's... Nere talked about praying for something for a year. You know, she still had life to do. But you wait, you wait on the Lord, because in due season, he brings his answer. And so Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand and wait for the answer. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It will hasten, it hastens toward the goal and will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Now, there's a legitimate question when we get to this part of the book, what vision he's talking about. When he says, write the vision down, is it the one that he just saw about the Chaldeans? coming in to overthrow Judah? Or is it the vision that he is about to see of the Lord revealing himself? Because in chapter 3, God gives Habakkuk a vision of himself. You know, there aren't too many people that can say, I've seen the Lord. Moses saw the Lord, at least in a manner of speaking. And Isaiah saw the Lord. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus had a vision of the Lord. Habakkuk tells of a vision. God opened his eyes to see the Lord in chapter 3. I'm not sure which vision he's talking about, but they have similar elements. And the vision is that God is going to bring justice. The wicked are not getting away with anything. God is keeping score. He's going to bring justice. It will come in due time. And write it down so that those who know it and see it can run. And then he says, Behold, verse 4 of chapter 2, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This is what I'm talking about, about coming to God with the right attitude. Okay? If you come to God like the atheist and say, you know what? There is no God. Because if there was a God, he would do a better job. Okay? That's pride. That's arrogance. That's the one whose soul is not right within him. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out, but Habakkuk spells it out for us. If you come to God with that attitude and say, you know what, i got more sense than you've got. And so either you're not there or you're a fool. That kind of attitude toward God betrays an inner spirit of arrogance. To, to think that you're smarter than God is, is pretty arrogant. However, the just shall live by faith. Now, this is an important verse If for no other reason than it's quoted three times in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes it in Galatians, he quotes it again in Romans, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it. And every time in the New Testament that it appears, it appears with the emphasis on a little different aspect of the verse. But the reality is that Habakkuk is coming to is that the righteous person lives by his confidence in God. He lives by faith. The arrogant questions God inappropriately, but the righteous lives by faith. You know, sometimes we hit these theological conundrums. You know, somebody gives us some kind of answer and, and we look at it and we say, that doesn't make sense. You know, and some people get their faith shaken by this or that or the other. Friends, there are some things that the Bible says about God that are absolutely true. One of those things is, God is good. The Bible says God is good. Okay, sometimes things look like they're out of whack here, and it doesn't look like God's doing a very good job. But the righteous person lives by faith. That the character of God revealed in the Scripture is a good God. And He is trustworthy. And I can lean on Him and He will support me and sustain me. He is a good God who is trustworthy. And He keeps His Word. And I can rely on it. It's impossible for God to lie. So when I don't understand something, that's exactly what it is. I don't understand it. I don't have insight for it. I can go to God with those questions. But in the end, I must trust that He is a good God. And as Habakkuk begins to explore his questions with God, what happens next in chapter 2 is kind of interesting because one sin after another is, is picked out. The proud one... Uh, in, in, in verse 4, the, um, the people who have, actually this is kind of interesting, uh, the people in verse 6 have increased their wealth by using high leverage technique, uh, borrowing and making themselves fat uh, by borrowing money to, to gain advantage. And he says, one day the chickens are going to come home to roost, then your creditors are going to demand payment. Man, that's a lesson we haven't figured out in this country. So there's an interesting thing about debt and wealth. In, in um, verse 9, he deals with another kind of thing. In verse 12, those who build a city with bloodshed and found towers uh, towns with violence. Verse 15 uh, deals with other kinds of sin and vice. Verse 18 deals with idolatry. And in every case, God reveals to Habakkuk, that there are natural consequences to sin. In other words, no one ever really gets away with it. There are natural consequences to sin. Even in this life, frequently there is a reaping of the seeds that have been sown. And, you know, sometimes Christians get mixed up in that, and they, they, they can't figure out, okay, wait a minute, I'm saved, I'm under the blood of Jesus, I have eternal life, um, I'm not going to be judged eternally, how does that fit? And, and I want to remind us, friends, that there's nothing in Scripture that says that you're not going to necessarily reap what you have sown. You make bad choices and poor judgment and one day the harvest comes and you don't like the fruit. That doesn't mean God hasn't forgiven you. It doesn't mean that you won't have eternal life and that your sins have been covered by the blood. That's a different aspect of the judgment. There is a cause and effect relationship in this lifetime and and there are consequences. The first thing Habakkuk uh, learns from God is there is there is a consequence for sin there is an outcome that's not going to be good and the wicked are going to reap some of that now and then they're going to reap eternal judgment and then God begins to open Habakkuk's eyes to see how as the god of history He deals with nations. And he basically says, though the wheels of my judgment turn slowly, they turn inevitably. And I will deal with those who are ungodly. They will not get away with it forever. Nations will topple. Countries will fall. Judgment will come now there's an interesting thing about that 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 we'll see as we move toward the end of the book but <laughs> what do you do when you're a godly person living in an ungodly nation a friend of mine who was a former missionary to the, that part of the world received a call from a, this is i'm not talking about um our our friends from this church but someone else entirely we got a call from uh, a Christian friend in, in northern Pakistan. And this fellow called him last week, and they had a conversation on the phone, and they prayed for one another. This is a believer. And this was his question, how could God allow this terrible thing to happen in a nation that is already so poor and so needy? Now, the flooding in, in the northern regions... And the whole villages are stranded and they can't get food and they can't get medical care. They can't get out because the bridges and roads are destroyed. It's a horrible situation. People are dying. And this Christian brother is asking, how could God allow this to happen where I am? Here's one of the realities of life we as godly people may be living in the midst of an ungodly nation. And when difficult times come, don't read more into that than what I'm saying, but when difficult times come, we may suffer along with the people around us. There's, there's no promise in Scripture that God is going to evacuate all the Christians before trouble lands. In fact, who is going to be his witness in the midst of the turmoil if no one's left to talk about him? And as Habakkuk begins to see the unfolding promise of the judgment of God, he comes to an interesting conclusion. Look in chapter 3, and and by the way, this is one of the... uh, The commentators say this is the loftiest of Hebrew poetry in Habakkuk chapter 3. I mean, he really waxes eloquent in his vision of God and, and what he sees... But he says in verse 2, in a phrase almost reminiscent of Job, he says, Lord, I have heard the report about Thee, and I fear. Now, here's where Habakkuk is. He has gotten his answer. He has learned as he has waited upon God, what God has shown him is judgment is coming. No one's getting away with anything. And when it comes, it's going to be bad. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God whose wrath is being visited on wickedness. And Habakkuk sees that. And he realizes... That while he's crying out for help, God is slow to respond because he's actually loving. When you see wicked being, uh, evil being perpetrated on what appears to be an innocent person, you know, our, our, our instant response is God, deal with them. And I want us to recognize this morning, I'm, I'm into my application here, but they kind of weave together. Life is short, and while suffering may seem intense at times, as the Apostle Paul put it in Corinthians, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time for us are not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory. On the other hand, life is short. And when it is over for the ungodly, eternity is forever in hell. How many of you felt a sense of exhilaration and accomplishment that day when we saw on our TV screens the elevated statue of Saddam Hussein toppled from the pillar in the streets of Baghdad as it was pulled over by the block and tackle of the American military. And and, and it was symbolic that the regime had been toppled and that Saddam had been dealt with and, and all of that kind of thing. How How many of us looked at that and said, yeah! But... Friends, even though a wicked regime came to an end, wicked people that day passed into eternity from which there is no return, where they will suffer the wrath of God in the fires of judgment that literally consume their lives. In the picture of rich man and Lazarus as Jesus told the story the man said will you let him at least put a drop of cool water on my tongue for I am parched and burning in the flames. And the answer was no. Forever and forever without end. Without hope. Without recovery. The loss will be judged and punished. We tend to say it is a good thing that justice has been met, but for the one judged, eternity is forever without hope of recovery. And God says, I'd rather wait Because he loves human beings. He loves us. Isn't that an amazing thing? He loves us. And as Habakkuk sees the awfulness of the judgment that is inevitable, he prays this prayer, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. <laughs> has Habakkuk had a turnabout or what? He starts out saying, God, what's taking you so long to come and get them? Deal with these people. And now, as God has opened his eyes to the judgment that is coming, he says, oh God, bring a revival and have Mercy. Hold it off a little longer. Give them a little bit more time to come to you. Be gracious to us. His whole spirit has changed because as God Himself says, and we saw in the last prophet, God takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. He doesn't enjoy that. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's not going to happen. The Bible says wide is the path and broad is the gate that leads to destruction and many people are on that path. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leads to life eternal and there are only a few that find that. But God is willing to wait for everyone to come in. And here's what we need to recognize. Think about the worst person you've ever known or, or read about. You probably have never known anyone as bad as some of the, the historical notorious greats. Think of the worst people you've studied in the course of human history. Think of Hitler. Think of others that have been so evil and so wicked in, in their behavior. Have you spent much time? Contemplating the truth that but for the grace of God, you could be like them? Because here's the amazing thing. Even though outward ungodliness is relative, the heart of man is the same the world over. We have the same black heart. And the seeds of sin lie in the heart of every one of us to accomplish any kind of wickedness. So when you think about the worst person you've ever known, recognize that the seeds of that behavior lie in your own heart. That's the first thing we need to remember. The second thing is, think of the most godly person, the most beautiful Christian you've ever met. Think of the person that reflects the character of Christ so wonderfully and so marvelously. And when you get that person in your mind, do you know that they're a trophy of grace? That what you see before your eyes is what God does when He comes into a life that was hell bound before that moment. That God is able to transform, that He is able to bring beauty out of our ashes, that He can transform the character and rebuild the the life of Christ within us in such a way that we become beautiful people. And we just look in, in amazement at the trophies of grace and then recognize that the worst sinner you can imagine can become the greatest saint you can envision by the grace of God in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, because God does that kind of miracle. The, the Apostle Paul was once Saul the tormentor on his way to Damascus to take more Christians in chains. And he had a vision of Jesus Christ and he fell from his horse and said, Oh, God, Lord, who are You that I am persecuting? And he met Jesus Christ and by his own testimony he said, I, the chief of sinners have received the grace of God and become what I am through His mercy. God is long-suffering. He puts up with junk because He loves. And we never know when the moment will be that that rascal on the road of perdition will become the next evangelist on the way to glory. We have that kind of God. Now, when you get those two things in your mind, there's one more thing I want you to think about this morning, just for a moment. Do a fast rewind in your own life. Is there anything that you would not want to be shown on the video screen here this morning for the whole church? And and why is it secret? Because God has been kind to you. Aren't you glad that he doesn't deal with you every time and judge you every moment? that you step out of line. But he is patient and tender and gracious and long-suffering, allowing for his mercy to work until we come to our senses. Let us not be too quick to say, God, how come you aren't dealing with the wicked? But to remember, God, thank you that you have not dealt with me according to my sin. But that you have placed that all on Jesus, and I am now your child. And I will never have to face your judgment or your wrath because you've been merciful. Don't you want that for someone else? Do we have to put up with it a little bit longer? Why does God let this ugly world go on from bad to worse because he's waiting Peter makes that very clear to us Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 he says God is not slack concerning his promise the way some people consider slackness but he is long suffering toward us and then he tells us why not willing that any should perish God waits while the world is in flames of wickedness. God waits because there's still someone out there that will respond to Jesus Christ. He knows that because their name has already been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He knows who they are. And He's waiting. He's waiting until that person comes. And one day, the last person in the last place on the planet will say yes to Jesus Christ. And he will not wait one second longer to come back. But he is waiting today. He is waiting today because he loves. We have a great God. We have a great God. And Habakkuk saw it all. And this is what he says in the end. Verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Here's what Habakkuk is saying. God has shown me what's coming, and I see it now. And it's not going to be good. And when they come, life is going to get tough. But it's inevitable. God's judgment is faithful. And you know what? (laughs) Here's, Here's what he's saying here. I must wait quietly for the day of distress. He said, I'm going to be here when it happens. And it's not going to be fun. Friends, you and I are going to be places that are not going to be fun. But he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, tough times. This is economic bad times. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. See, he's got his perspective now. He's got the big picture. And he says, The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Have you ever looked at those um, bighorn sheep out in the Rockies? You know, they kind of almost dance up the side of the cliff and you'll... You look at them and say, I don't even see anything to hang on to. And they're walking up it like there's just nothing holding them back. They, they, they run around the cliffs and the crags and the mountains like there's nothing. <laughs> they, they couldn't possibly fall. They look like they're weightless. That's what he's talking about. You make my feet like hinds feet in high places. You, you strengthen me. You take me through the trouble. I'm going to be okay with you, Lord. And now I'm worried about those who don't know you because I I, I want them to experience your mercy. I'm praying for revival. Do we have the bigger picture? Are we so focused on ourselves that all we want is God to make us comfortable? Friends, we have all eternity to be comfortable. Are we more concerned about unbelievers who have all eternity to suffer? Do we want to see them redeemed? Are we willing to be the witnesses? Are we willing to be faithful? Do we recognize when Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? He wasn't kidding. We may go through deep water, but He will be with us. We may go through the fire, but He will be with us. He will see us out on the end, and when it's all done, we have glory in front of us. I think that's what Greg Lowry is preaching on tonight. We have glory in front of us. Is it worth it to be God's person in God's place in the meanwhile? Because He loves the wicked people around you. He loves them. And but for the grace of God, you might be among them and not where you are. Thank you, God, for waiting to bring judgment. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your message, to see the bigger picture, to understand why you tarry, to know that it's out of love and goodness and mercy that you delay judgment. Perhaps others will flee to Christ and be redeemed. But thank you also, Lord, that you do not ignore sin and that the wicked will be punished. You haven't lost the books. You are still keeping score. And in the end... You will be fair and just. Thank you that we are safe in Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.